excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 16, where we're going to pick up in verse 15 and then read until verse 23 of chapter 17. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that we are in the midst of Absalom's rebellion against David, his father. Absalom is a son of David. He's rebelled against his father. He's attempting to take the throne from David. David has already fled the city of Jerusalem. And now in this passage, Absalom will march into the city unopposed. If this were a chess match, then Absalom is essentially one move away from inflicting a fatal checkmate. Things do not look good for David as we begin. And that's where we pick it up in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 16. So please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one had consulted the Word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose twelve thousand men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king." And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, Shall we do as he says? If not, then you speak." Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place 
where He is to be found, and we shall light upon Him as the dew falls on the ground. And of Him and of all the men with Him, not one will be left. If He withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order, and he hanged himself, and he died, and was buried in the tomb of his father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we need Your grace. To understand and to know and to apply and to love and to believe all the things that the Bible tells us are true. We know, God, that every syllable of the Scriptures is true, and yet our hearts find it hard to believe them and certainly hard to obey them at times. And so we ask for grace now, God. Grace to believe, grace to obey the grace to know truth from error and to hold fast to the things that You have spoken in the Scriptures, God. Lord, please give me the grace necessary to preach what is faithful and true and accurate to the Scriptures and help Your people to hold fast only to what comes from Your Word. May our focus, God, be on what You have said today. And may it be for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Have you ever found yourself caught in the middle of a power struggle? My first job out of college was working at the University of Arkansas managing databases. It wasn't nearly as exciting as it sounds. Managing databases. What made it particularly bad was that my direct boss and my department boss were not friends. And so since I was the low man on the totem pole, I was stuck in the middle between the two bosses, right? It was a power struggle. I was often caught in the middle, and it wasn't fun. But I'm sure my experience is not unique. If we went around the room today, there would probably be 
more than a few similar stories from your workplace, from your neighborhood, from your network of friends. Sadly, most of us have experienced what it's like to be caught in the middle of a power struggle, two people vying for control. And that means we can relate, at least in part, to the passage we find before us this morning in 2 Samuel. As you just heard from our reading, this passage is a power struggle. This passage is a power struggle between Ahithophel, who serves Absalom, and Hushai, who secretly remains loyal to David. Those two men vie for control. And in their struggle, the fate of the kingdom hangs in the balance. That's not an exaggeration to say that. The fate of the kingdom of David hangs in the balance in this struggle between Ahithophel and Hushai. Whose counsel will win? Which man will prevail in the struggle for power? And yet, at the same time, calling this passage a power struggle doesn't tell the whole story, does it? As we've seen often in 2 Samuel, there is a behind-the-scenes perspective that adds another layer to what's going on. And that's true here. On the one hand, yes, this is a power struggle between Absalom and David manifested in this showdown between Ahithophel and Hushai. But on another level, the power struggle simply sets the stage for what we could call the ultimate power display. But here's the key, friends. Here's the theme of the passage. Here's the one central truth from all those verses that we just read. The power doesn't come from Ahithophel or from Hushai. The power doesn't come from Absalom or even from David. No, the power on display in these verses is the power, or we could say the sovereignty, of God. The power or the sovereignty of God. That's the theme of this text. Behind the power struggle in David's kingdom, there stands a sovereign God who does whatever He pleases. And through these events, even the events that are wicked, through these events, God displays His power in order to remind all of us that in every situation, no matter whether it's good or bad, He alone is sovereign. That's the theme of this passage. God is displaying His sovereignty. So with that theme in mind, I just want to go through the passage with you and see how the Scriptures develop this theme. I'd like for you to see four aspects of God's sovereign power this morning. Four aspects of God's sovereignty with each one coming directly from the events of the passage. By all means, I want you to know the doctrinal truth that God is sovereign, but I want you to see it from the Bible rather than believe it from a textbook. So four aspects from God's sovereignty in this passage. The first is found at the end of chapter 16, verses 15 to 23. Here we see the sovereignty of God's Word. The sovereignty of God's Word. Ahithophel the traitor is the main focus in these verses. Notice in verse 15 how Ahithophel is the only person mentioned by name with Absalom. Ahithophel will be the main focus. But before we get to him, we need to notice Hushai. You'll remember that Hushai is David's friend. But instead of taking David along with him, David sent Hushai back to Jerusalem where he will serve as a double agent in Absalom's regime. And in verses 16-19, to Hushai brilliantly enacts David's plan. With clever ambiguity, Hushai ingratiates himself to Absalom. Notice verse 16 where Hushai calls out, Long live the king! 
I mean, technically, Hushai doesn't say who that king is. Very well could be David, at least in Hushai's mind. Then notice his response to Absalom's mocking question, verse 18. For whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. Again, it's just ambiguous enough to make you wonder, whom has the Lord chosen? Isn't it David? Even verse 19 carries on with this studied ambiguity. Notice that Hushai says he will serve the son of David. But he doesn't say that Absalom is that son. Hushai could just as easily be thinking of the true heir to the throne. The son who would one day rightfully succeed his father. You see, it's subtle, but the strategy is brilliant. Hushai plays on Absalom's pride. Absalom hears what he wants to hear. When Hushai says, long live the king, Absalom thinks, of course he's talking about me. I've got long flowing hair. Everybody loves me. Of course I'm the king. Absalom fancies himself as the one in control, the one whom God has chosen. And Hushai brilliantly uses that pride to his advantage. He hears what he wants to hear. But for now, Hushai takes a back seat and the focus of the section is on Ahithophel. And in verses 20 to 22, David's former counselor enacts a plan of his own. That's the first thing you should notice about Ahithophel. He's a traitor. He's a traitor. Many commentators call Ahithophel the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. And that's an apt description. Ahithophel is a traitor. He betrayed David, his counselor. And he did so even without a second thought, it seems. But that's not all that should get your attention. Ahithophel may be a traitor, but he's also wickedly effective at his job. He's really good at what he does. He's a royal advisor. So think of him like a modern-day political strategist, but with more power. And I would say more cunning, but I think most political strategists today are pretty cunning too. So just a political strategist with more power. Absalom needs to act quickly to solidify his power. So in verse 20, he asks Ahithophel, what should we do? Give us your counsel. And Ahithophel's plan is wickedly effective. Verse 21 gives the details, and they are shameful. Look again, verse 21. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. But we don't need to go into the specifics here, either about the plan or the cultural background. It's sufficient enough to note that in the ancient Near East, to take the king's concubines was to take the king's position. So you can see why we say Ahithophel's counsel is wickedly effective. This is a vile and outrageous thing to do, but it sends exactly the message that Absalom wants to communicate. My father is nothing, Absalom says. My father is nothing. In fact, he's so weak, he can't even protect the people that belong to his own house. All that my father has is mine. That's what Absalom wants to communicate. And in verse 22, that's exactly what he does. Notice what the text says and listen for the public nature of it all. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Friends, I know that that is disturbing, and it should be. It's supposed to be disturbing. This is the peak of Absalom's power. 
This is the pinnacle of his regime. At this point, in verse 22, for all intents and purposes, Absalom rules the kingdom of Israel. The throne belongs to him. He rules the kingdom of Israel. And yet, things are not hopeless. And the reason has to do with God's Word. We've seen this point over the last several weeks a number of times, but we find it here again today. God is bringing to pass precisely what He said He would do. Chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. In response to David's sin with Bathsheba, God said this, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So is Ahithophel's counsel wicked? Yes, absolutely. But does that wickedness overturn the Word of God? Never. Not in the least. I know we've seen this point the last several weeks, but there's a unique perspective here in chapter 16 that I don't want you to miss. Please don't let the repetition week after week cloud the unique application here. Again, this is the high point of Absalom's power. This is the pinnacle of his regime. He will never have more power than what he has at this moment. And still... Absalom cannot overturn the Word of the Lord. Still, Absalom cannot outrun the Word of God. Or to say it another way, Absalom may be powerful, but he's not sovereign. Friends, do you see the encouragement here? And you didn't mishear me. I said encouragement. You see the encouragement here? I know that this passage is hard, and I'm not going to pretend to scrub away all the hard things. But I do hope to encourage you with this takeaway. The wicked of this world are never as powerful as they perceive themselves to be. And their position is never as secure as they presume it to be. The wicked are never as powerful as they fancy themselves. And their position is never as secure. At all times, God reigns sovereignly through His Word. And on the last day, this astonishing truth will be revealed that even at their peak, the only thing the wicked did was further the plan of God. Every wicked person who's ever walked the face of this earth on the last day will crumble under the fact that they helped to further the plan of God even in their wickedness. It doesn't make it less wicked. But it certainly doesn't overturn God's Word either. Who knows what the future holds for the church, friends? It may be that we have to live under an Absalom-like ruler someday. A ruler who opposes King Jesus and despises Christ's church. It may be that this wonderful free country in which we find ourselves living is a blip on the radar of the church. And it may be that an Absalom rises again That may be our future. Only the Lord knows. But even if that is our future, hope is not lost. Hope is not lost. For as we see here with Absalom, the wicked can never overturn the sovereignty of God's Word. He does what He pleases. That brings us to the second aspect of God's sovereign power, and it really flows right from the first In verses 1 to 14 of chapter 17, we see the sovereignty of God's command. The sovereignty of God's command. Verse 
Ahithophel is still the focus here, at least for a few more verses. You'll notice the last verse of chapter 16 described Ahithophel's lofty reputation. Look again there, verse 23 at the end of chapter 16. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the Word of God. So Ahithophel is revered almost like a prophet. When he speaks, people act as though God has spoken. Ahithophel's insight and his reputation are beyond compare. All of that to say, this doesn't look good for David. And indeed, as chapter 17 begins, Ahithophel lives up to his lofty reputation. He gives Absalom good counsel. Good counsel. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to say that the counsel is morally good. It's not morally good. It's wicked. But it is politically good. It is good military strategy. Verses 1-4 to give you the details, but we can summarize it pretty quickly. Absalom should strike David right now without delay. Strike him right now. That's Ahithophel's counsel, and he's right. David will never be weaker than he is at this moment. Just remember, he's, he's run all the way from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, 21 miles, 3,500 feet downward in elevation. He had to travel through the night. He has a huge pack of people with him. He's at the river. He's discouraged. He's weary. This is Absalom's best chance to win. In fact, every second Absalom waits is another second David has to escape and to regroup. So Ahithophel is right. If Absalom wants to succeed in overthrowing his father, he needs to strike David right now. Go right now. And then something unexpected happens. Honestly, friends, this is one of those turning points in biblical history that comes out of nowhere and catches you by surprise. Verse 5, chapter 17. Absalom asks for a second opinion. And the person he asks is none other than Hushai, David's double agent. Just think about that. Ahithophel gives counsel like the Word of God. Talking to Ahithophel is like talking to God, is what people thought. Yet Absalom asks for another opinion. Why? Well, we don't know. At least not yet. For now, we need to see that the door is open for Hushai. And with boldness... Hushai steps forward to undermine the esteemed Ahithophel. Verses 7-13 to 13 give the details of Hushai's plan. And honestly, friends, it is a masterpiece of rhetoric. It's brilliantly put together. Notice with me, just briefly, how Hushai works to undermine Ahithophel. First of all, Hushai introduces doubt. Look at verse 8. Hushai suggests that Ahithophel has underestimated David. Your father will be like an enraged mother bear fighting for her cubs. That's what he says. You don't cross a man like that. He's dangerous. What's more, remember, your dad is an expert in strategy. He ran from Saul for decades in the wilderness. Don't think you're going to catch him now. He's already hidden himself. You've underestimated him. That's what Hushai says. See, you can already hear his argument building. He's sprinkled in enough fact about David to make Absalom have some doubt. Then he keeps going, and he warns of serious danger. Remember, back in verse 2, Ahithophel said the entire operation would be over in an instant. Give me 12,000 guys, we go tonight, we kill the king, it's over. How is this a bad plan? Let me go right now. That's what Ahithophel said. It's easy. Now Hushai turns that on its head. Look at verses 9 and 10, chapter 17. Hushai warns Absalom of the worst case scenario. What if you fail to kill David? What if he gets away? 
What if some of your men die? What if word then spreads that the rebellion has failed? Then what? What happens then, Absalom? If that happens, even your bravest warriors will run away in fear. Again, you can hear what he's doing. Doubt, danger. Hushai's making his case. It's brilliant. Then comes the final step where he proposes a safer strategy. Verses 11 to 13, chapter 17. Recount the plan. And again, Hushai plays on Absalom's pride. I love this part. Notice specifically verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. You'll recall Ahithophel said that he would lead the strike force himself that very night. But Hushai subtly whispers here to Absalom, now don't, don't let Ahithophel get the glory. No, don't, don't let him get the crown. You lead the army, Absalom. It's a horrible idea, by the way. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. You lead the army, Absalom. Sure, it's going to take us longer to organize all those people, but just think about it. Can you just imagine all of Israel gathered under your command, Absalom? Can you see it? And I mean, you can imagine Absalom's eyes getting wider at the thought that everybody is going to be following me. It's too much for the prideful man to resist. And so what was unthinkable just a few verses earlier now becomes a reality. Notice the first line, verse 14. And, all, and Absalom and all, all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. That's unbelievable, friends. It's not better. It's worse. It's unbelievable. How has this happened? Ahithophel's words are like the Word of God. So why did Absalom doubt him? Why did he even call for Hushai, let alone give him a chance to talk? I mean, this practically begs for an explanation. How has this happened? Last line of verse 14 gives you the explanation. This is the theological center of the passage, the turning point of Absalom's rebellion. Notice again what it says, last line, verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Well, to put it very simply, friends, all of this happened because God ordained for it to happen. Or to put it differently, all of this happened because God commanded these things to occur. That's what that word ordained means there. It means God's command or God's decree. In His sovereignty, God commanded these very things so that David would be spared and Absalom would be justly punished. How did it happen? Because God said for it to happen. Just like this. But I want you to catch how this command has been carried out. I want you to notice how the sovereignty got worked out. It was not with advance notice, but in a way that was hidden from human perspective. We only know about God's command because Scripture gives us this behind-the-scenes explanation. Hushai didn't know ahead of time. He didn't know that God had ordained these things. Absalom surely didn't know. Instead, almost quietly, God's sovereign command was carried out how? Through Hushai, using his skill with words, and taking the initiative in the situation God had placed him. 
Friends, I hope you see the two truths that exist side by side in this passage. Side by side, holding hands as if they were friends. Two truths. One truth, God sovereignly decrees whatever will happen. Whatever. God decrees it and it is done. And the second truth, God's decree is worked out through willful, purposeful actions of human beings. Side by side, together, we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility held together in a compatible, complementary balance. Both of them working together. It's never biblical then to use one of the truths to undermine the other. You can't do that. It's never biblical to use one of the truths to undermine the other. You've probably heard people say before that the truth of God's sovereignty makes human beings into robots who just mindlessly do what they're programmed to do. You've probably heard people say that. But 2 Samuel 17 is just one example among many of why those kinds of statements are untrue. They're not right. Let me just put it as clearly as I can. Why did Absalom reject Ahithophel's counsel? Because Hushai made a persuasive argument. Why did Absalom reject Ahithophel's counsel? Because God ordained for him to reject it. Both statements are true. Both of them are true, friends. And to believe the Bible... We've got to hold both of them together because that's how we find them. And, and listen, this is, more, this is about more than, than philosophical arguments. I have zero interest in philosophical discussions about how sovereignty and human freedom relate to one another. I just don't care about the philosophy. This is about more than philosophy, though. This is about more than philosophical arguments. Holding these truths together in balance is actually key to living the Christian life. Here's what I mean. I want to live in light of God's sovereignty. And I'm sure that you do too. Right? It's a safe statement. I want to live in light of God's sovereignty. I don't ever want to be found opposing what God has ordained. That sounds terrifying to me. But, in His wisdom, God has not given me a detailed list of all that He ordains to do. I don't know what His sovereign will for the rest of today holds. I don't see His sovereignty in the moment. Unless He reveals it to me through His Word, His sovereignty is hidden from me. I can't see it. So where does that leave me? How can I live in light of God's sovereignty if I don't know the details? What am I supposed to do, God? Well, quite simply, I do what Hushai does In this passage, I take the gifts that God has given me and I embrace the place where God has put me and walking by faith, I act. I act. I take the gifts that God has given me and I embrace the place that God has put me and walking by faith, I take action. I love my neighbor as myself, trusting that God's sovereign command will be done. I evangelize the lost, trusting that God will save those whom He has determined to save. I raise my kids in the fear of the Lord, trusting that God's sovereign will for them is carried out through my daily work of training them. I love my wife. I do my job with integrity. I read the Bible and pray and serve the church. Do you see where I'm going? Holding these truths together, that God is sovereign and that I am responsible, holding those truths together actually frees me to live most fully each day doing what God has given me to do. Far from making me into a robot, 
understanding the sovereign will of God should compel me with the realization that this is how God accomplishes what He wants to do. Not by zapping people with lightning bolts, but through the faithful actions of His people. I take the gifts that God has given me. I embrace the place where God has put me. And walking by faith, I do something for the glory of God. Let's be these kinds of Christians, brothers and sisters. Let's not simply affirm the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Let's display our delight in that doctrine by giving ourselves fully and freely every day to the things that God has given us to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's a statement of God's sovereignty worked out in your life. The sovereignty of God's command is absolute. Praise God. Nothing that He says will ever fail to come to pass. Ever. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything that He pleases. And that should encourage us all the more to faithful action in the world. Sovereignty of God's command. That's number two. We have to keep going. You'll notice in the passage that after giving his counsel, Hushai takes no chances. Look at verse 15. Chapter 17, verse 15. Hushai immediately relays what he has learned to Abiathar and Zadok, the priests. Apparently, Hushai was not involved in Absalom's final decision. He doesn't know yet what Absalom is going to decide. He doesn't know. So beginning in verse 15 and going until verse 22, there's this thrilling account of rushing after to warn David. And it's from this scene that we see the third aspect of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God's providence. Sovereignty of God's providence. Again, Hushai doesn't know that his counsel has won the day. He doesn't know that yet. For all he knows, Absalom could agree with Ahithophel, which would mean disaster for David. So Hushai alerts Abiathar and Zadok, The priests in turn send word to their sons, and their sons then head for David's camp. So far, so good. That's when the problem strikes. Verse 18. Notice verse 18. A man sees the priest's sons, gets suspicious because they're friends with David, and tells Absalom. So now the race is on. The priest's sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, the priest's sons have to get to David before Absalom gets to them. And what happens next is full of tension and excitement. The priest's sons hurry into the town of Behurim, verse 18, but Absalom's men are hot on their heels. What are they going to do? Suddenly, however, the sons just happen to meet a man of Behurim. Perhaps he's out mowing his grass. What's the man's name? We don't know. But he has a well where the priest's sons can hide. The man also has a quick-thinking wife, and she covers the well with a blanket and spreads some grain on it to make it look like they're just you know, threshing yesterday's barley harvest. What's this woman's name? Again, we don't know. They don't tell us. But her quick-thinking wins the day. Absalom's men can't find the priest's sons, and after some misdirection from the shrewd woman, Absalom's cronies return to Jerusalem empty-handed. And as a result, David escapes to safety. Notice verses 21 and 22. The messengers reach David and tell him to cross the river. 
the Jordan River will act as a natural barrier between Absalom and David. But even more importantly, crossing the Jordan gives David time to regroup and prepare for the battle that he's about to win. You see, friends, Absalom has missed his chance. It's it's basically over now. David has reached the safety of the eastern shore, and now it's only a matter of time until the king returns to his throne. Absalom's fate is sealed. But how did it all happen? How did it go down? Through the sovereign providence of God. It's really delightful, friends, if you have eyes to see it. Just think about it for just a moment. Absalom has all the power in the kingdom at this point. He has resources and informants and mercenaries at his disposal. This should be easy hunting for Absalom's men. So what does God do? God thwarts Absalom's plan, but not with an army, not with a thunderbolt of lightning from heaven, not with a miracle. No, God thwarts Absalom with two everyday unnamed Israelites who hide David's friends in a well. A well of all places. A dark, damp, uncomfortable well. I wouldn't have gone down in there. I'm I'm taking my chances with Absalom. I'm not going in a well. No way. But that's what God does. He takes two everyday unnamed Israelites and they have a well in their front yard and He hides David's friends in a well. A dark, damp, uncomfortable well. But that's just it. It's there at the low point of hiding in the dark, damp well that God's providence shines the brightest. It's there in the well that we remember God's providence is sovereign and governs all things for the good of His people. Things are not spiraling out of control. Absalom doesn't have the upper hand. God's not stressed over how this will turn out. The Lord knows precisely what He's doing. In fact, the Lord seems to delight in confounding the wicked with these simple but surprising acts of, uh, of providence. Listen, I, I, can't, I can't prove this definitively, but I will contend to you that the author of 2 Samuel means for you to chuckle when you read verse 18. He, he means for you to laugh. It's a well! <laughs> They're hiding from the most powerful man of Israel in a well! It's almost as though the Lord is saying to you and to me, watch how I stump Absalom with this one. I don't need a whirlwind. I don't need a fortress. I don't need an army. I'll use two no-names to hide my servant in a well. (laughs) Watch. And perhaps as we chuckle at verse 18, it'll be enough to teach us not to discount the surprising, sometimes small ways God works in our lives today. You see, that's the takeaway here. God's providence in your life, friends, may appear small. You may have asked Him for an army or a fortress or a miracle, and God may have only given you a dark, damp well. His providence may appear small. But make no mistake, friends, that small providence comes from the hand of a sovereign God. And therefore, small though it may be, it will prove more than capable of meeting you in your need. I wouldn't have gone down in that well, but it was precisely what they needed. His providence, friends, is sovereign, and even when it's small, it's timely. And so we come to the end, verse 23, where we'll close with one final aspect of God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God's kingdom. Sovereignty of God's kingdom. 
it's fitting that the passage ends with Ahithophel. It started with Ahithophel back in verse 15. Now it ends with Ahithophel. He's the esteemed counselor whose words are counted like the word of God. But he's also the one who betrayed David, the Lord's anointed. And so, like Judas Iscariot some centuries later, Ahithophel sees no way to escape his betrayal. Notice verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So again, just like Judas Iscariot some centuries later, Ahithophel takes his own life. And the text says it was because his counsel was not followed. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that Ahithophel sees his plan falling apart. Perhaps his intention all along was to be the power behind the throne, the puppet master pulling all the strings in Absalom's kingdom, and now he sees that's not going to work, and so he despairs. That's certainly a possibility. But it's also likely, and perhaps more so, that Ahithophel understands full well what the rejection of his counsel means. Remember, Ahithophel is wicked, but he's also insightful. He can put two and two together. He's perceptive, and he can see where things are headed. Even now, David is regaining strength. That's what he's thinking. Even now, the king is regaining his strength, and it's only a matter of time until David smashes Absalom's rebellion and inflicts judgment on all those who betrayed him. And who do you think's at the top of the list? Ahithophel. Ahithophel knows what's coming, and rather than face the consequences... He takes his own life. It's either death now or death later, for you cannot oppose God's kingdom and survive. That's what Ahithophel recognizes. And so, this passage that began as a power struggle ends with an incredible power display. Ahithophel was a counselor without compare, and yet he could not stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. God in His sovereignty upholds His kingdom against all enemies, even the ones who seem to speak the Word of God. God upholds His kingdom forever. And so, that puts this final question before us as we close. If God sovereignly upholds His kingdom forever, then where does your allegiance lie? That's the last question of the passage. If God sovereignly upholds His kingdom forever, then where does your allegiance lie? Is it with the Lord and with His anointed, whom the Scriptures tell us is none other than Jesus Christ, the greater Son of David? Do you know Christ by faith? Is your life devoted to Christ and to His kingdom? Or like Ahithophel, are you opposing God's kingdom in hopes of building your own? That's the most pressing question today, friends. In His sovereignty, God upholds His kingdom forever. So where does your allegiance lie? May God, may God grant us grace, friends, to trust Christ and to devote ourselves to His sovereign, unshakable kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.